Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, BC the Beatles Everywhere. We'll be posting photos, videos, and more from this episode and beyond. Also, you can email us at any time, bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Yeah, and actually a fun note on Facebook, uh, we're, I think, just a couple likes away from hitting 600. Woo, nice. Thank you, guys. Yeah, seriously, we uh, love interacting with you guys on social media. It's always very fun. And, you know, you guys ask really good questions. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty interesting to see what pops up. So, so thank you so much for the likes and the comments and the clicks. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've talked. What have you been up to, Allison? What have I been up to? Well, gee, I just <laughs> I just got back to the country, as, oh, as we much. say. Nothing much. I was over in uh, Paris, and then I went to Holland. I was in The Hague um, and Amsterdam, and I went to uh, Delft, where they make the blue and white pottery that Holland's really famous for. And it was really, really nice. So it was 10 days abroad. Um, I hadn't been in Paris in like 10 years. I'd never been to Holland. So it was fun. I liked it. It was uh, very, very cold. But uh, but I did some cool Beatles shit. And I posted some of the photos um, on our social media. So you can check those out. But in Paris, I made a point to go to the George V Hotel, which was where the Beatles found out that they hit number one in America with No One Hold Your Hand. Um, and there's really, it's a famous photo shoot. You know what I'm sure of the, like the pillow fight. Oh, yeah. In the hotel suite. Yeah. But, so that's where that took place. Um, there's a really cute, like, series of photos where they're all sitting around on couches and Brian's there. So, of course, you know, I love that. Um, yeah. So that was cool. And then I walked up to the uh, Champs-Élysées and uh, took some photos because there's, you know, photos of the Beatles uh, on that sort of stretch. I love those photos. I used to have a poster of that in my bedroom. Oh my God. That's so awesome. I mean, my friend took a picture of me like browsing through postcards. Cause I'm pretty sure there's a photo of Paul browsing through postcards in the Champs-Élysées and I'm trying to find it. And it's like, of course, when I, I like want to post it or want to compare it to the photos that I took, I can't find it, but in my head, I can see it. I hate that. <laughs> I hate that feeling. Everybody who's listening to us. If you know that photo or you have it. Yeah, please post it. Send it to us, post it. I just, yeah, it's making me crazy. Anyway, so yeah, so it was Paris. Then in Amsterdam, oh, God. So we do a favorite thing of the week. This is my unfavorite thing of the week. I went to the Amsterdam Hilton, which obviously in the Battle of John and Yoko, they named check it. That's where the bed-in happened in 1969. I was really excited. I had been writing back and forth with the uh, somebody in the marketing department there for a couple weeks. And she was like, yeah, you know, if it's available, we'd love to show you the suite. Like... You know, I was getting really excited and, and I kept checking in and even checked in the day, the morning of before I went to the Hilton and I uh, was really psyched, you know, it was still available. And then I get there and they give me some like bullshit excuse about how they like were doing construction in the room. So I couldn't get into it. Dicks. And yeah, it was kind of dickish. And the thing is, it's like I would get it if it seemed plausible to me. But for instance, one girl I talked to was like, yeah, you know, we had you know nobody booked there that whole week so we decided to do these repairs like we really can't do anything about it and then somebody else came out was like oh you know we had a lot of heavy winds last night that's why we're fixing it up and i'm like okay you guys just gave me two conflicting stories of why i can't see this room so kind of upset about it <laughs> so 
I didn't see the room, which sucked, but did go to the Amsterdam Hilton and then went over to the concert Gabo, which of course is name check and rock show. Yeah, the concert Gabo. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So and every time I say the name, even in my head, I get that song stuck in my head. So I was trying to think like, okay, have I been to all the rock show venues? Like, I've never seen a show, obviously, at the Concert Cabo, or I've actually never seen a show at MSG, which is really sad. Oh, really? I saw Paul at MSG. Oh, you bitch. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've definitely been to the Hollywood Bowl a bunch, but uh, yeah, I don't know. So it's cool. Did you put your wig hat on, your high-heeled shoes? Oh, yeah. Anyway, so too long didn't read. Uh, trip was good. 10 out of 10 would go again. Very happy to be back. Very happy to be recording this fun episode but what about what about you erica what's uh what's been new well it's the holiday time and we did our tree last night which was lots of fun Mm -hmm. of course our tree is not like the standard tree because we're weird and we're nerds we have two trees we have a doctor who tree and a regular tree and the trees are small this year because we also have a puppy who eats everything so they're small and (laughs) luckily she's cute yeah luckily she's cute because she is an asshole <laughs> Just saying. She is. I've she, met her. She's adorable. She's though. kind of an asshole. Yeah, she's yeah. adorable. Um, yeah, so we have Star Wars stockings. We have Doctor Who tree. We have the Doctor Who scarf as a tree um, skirt. And we have this painting that my partner Luke has of Noel Gallagher. And we found a really pretty Christmassy thing that says Noel. And we put it underneath it. So, you know, <laughs> we represent all of our geeky stuff at Christmas. And it's fun. And I'm sitting here recording and drinking the wonderful spiced rum cider that we made for tree decorating last night. That sounds so nice. Ugh, so sounds good. so like warm and Christmassy. So speaking of Christmas, uh, you know, it's almost the end of the year. I can't believe it. Insane. Right? I know. A little bit of housekeeping, I guess. So we're putting together a schedule for 2019. We've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. I'm super stoked um, about some of the surprises we've got and some of the guests that we're working on. Um, But, you know, we wanted to open up to you guys, our listeners. You know, what do you want us to do in 2019? Is there anything you want us to tackle, like, is there anybody you want us to interview? We've already had some people who have gotten in touch with us with ideas, which are amazing. So once that we get together and consolidate everything, we'll be writing back to you guys shortly. So thank you so much for being in touch with us. We're always looking to highlight underrepresented events and people from both the Beatles history and our fan community. So, you know, if there's some pressing issue that you want to talk about, you really haven't heard about it discussed anywhere else, let us know because we would love to know what you want us to talk about. Especially if you haven't heard it on other Beatles podcasts or Beatles like, you know, books or whatever. Totally interesting to us. Hit us up, bcthebeatles at gmail.com or social media. You can find us anywhere um, at bcthebeatles. And also, if you haven't entered our giveaway, I mean, I don't know what you're waiting for. It ends at midnight on December 23rd. And we've got some good prizes. All of our guests contributed a book, which is great, from 2018. I know. So cool. Most of them are signed. Yeah. So we've got... Leslie Cavendish, who you know is the Beatles hairdresser. He was on episode, I believe, three. I think so, yeah. Um, so his book, The Cutting Edge, got a copy of that. Candy Leonard gave us two copies of her Beatles book, which is amazing. Jude Kessler, it, this is astounding to me. She's giving us two volumes of her John Lennon series. And these are limited edition, numbered and signed. Like, that's such a good price. It's I'm, I'm very jealous of the winner of those, even though I have them, but whatever. Ken Womack is giving us both volumes of his biography of George Martin. The second volume just came out, I think, in September. And, of course, Rob Sheffield is going to give us a copy of his Dreaming the Beatles, which 
if you're unfamiliar, definitely take a listen to our last episode because we had Rob on and had a great time. If you want to enter, head over to bcthebeatles.com, find the giveaway, or you know, just check out our social media. It's posted everywhere. The contest ends at midnight on December 23rd, so get it in mind. You got any late Christmas presents you haven't bought for people? It's a good belated Christmas present for a friend, even if you already have some of the books. And you never know. I had uh, one of my friends say to me, you know, I would enter, but I already have a lot of these books. But you never know. You could you could win one you don't have. So definitely worth an entry. And, you know, thank you so much to the authors and the guests for giving us these copies. It's so generous. They're such lovely people. We're very, very fortunate to have, uh, you know, had them on the podcast. And yeah, really, really exciting stuff. week in Beatles history. Uh, we haven't done this for a couple of weeks because last week we did the Beatles book club and we didn't do this. So we just wanted to acknowledge a couple of huge events in the community. First, of course, is the anniversary of John Lennon's death on December 8th. This year marked 38 years since he was tragically shot and killed in front of the Dakota Apartments in New York City. There was a beautiful outpouring of love for John and memories of John and you know, sadness and love and also tinged with hope for the future about the things that John was so passionate about in his lifetime. It's interesting to me that we live in such a time where this is a really immediate message and it's 38 years later, you know, it's, and not to get overly political, although we might get kind of political in this episode. It's pretty insane that, you know, we're still like how far we've not come, you know, since John left us so tragically Yoko every year posts that really horrible picture of his blood-covered glasses oh, over right. the New York City skyline, and this year it had it had a terrible statistic of the number of, of gun violence deaths that have happened since John was killed, and it's just staggering. Yeah, it's very, very sad. Actually, it's funny. I remember seeing those glasses. They were in the Rock Hall when they had the big uh, John Lennon retrospective, I think in 2000. Uh, it was only supposed to last like six months and they extended it for, I think, four years. Oh, wow. Uh, but she had the glasses there. Very, absolutely stark imagery. And it was a lot more shocking, I think, back then. Um, I think now we obviously are exposed to a lot more uh, mass media of just violence, but it's really important. I'm glad she does that. I'm glad she shows the world, you know, this is what happened to John. So hopefully some good can come out of it. I can't imagine what she still goes through every year, you know, with uh, just the death of her husband and the father of her son, you know, just basic level. But for her to turn it around and try to do something with it, I think is amazing. So unfortunately, we also have to mark another sad day in Beatle history, backing up a little bit to November 29th, 2001, when sadly George Harrison passed away here in Los Angeles. This is the one that we always talk about as second gen fans and third gen fans of like, we actually remember this because yeah. you and I weren't there when John uh, was murdered, but we, I definitely remember this day. Me too. Where were you? You remember? For sure. I was uh, in my house. I was getting ready for school. I would have been, uh, I guess, a sophomore, I think. And I came downstairs and my mom said, she just literally just blurted out like George Harrison. Died. Oh. And I was like, I, I remember just like, sort of like falling against the wall in the kitchen, like just really heartbroken because I, I feel like I remember a couple of days before that he had just put out a statement that was like, I'm doing great. Uh, everything's fine. And sort of reassuring the fans. And then, you know, waking up that morning and being like, Oh, Nope, he's gone. And it was, it was, I remember that whole day. I remember school the whole day just being really upset. Like, yeah, 
Yeah. How about you? I was doing a work study in graduate school at the time. So I remember going in and I actually went in early, which I didn't usually Mm -hmm. do. And they always played this like terrible listen while you work sort of radio station. And that day, like they interrupted it that the two announced that George had died. And then for the whole day, they had interspersed George Harrison songs in with it. And like I had heard that he was not doing well, but I really had probably naive hope that, oh, you know, they'll figure it out. You know, he'll be okay. I couldn't believe it for a really long time. Like, I really thought that they would turn it around somehow. Yeah, and I remember the CNN coverage, like, later that night. I had a little notebook that I kept beside the computer in my house, and I wrote down, you know, George's last words, which are, you know, famous as, uh, you know, lovey. I, I think love it's just one love another. one another. Yeah. yeah, love one another. And um, at that point, I was doing a lot of artwork. I remember doing a lot of George. A lot of George, like, pastels for some reason. I was, I was emo. <laughs> Uh, and it's funny, you know, talking to younger fans at Fest and things, they don't remember when George died, which I think is so interesting. We obviously remember it very viscerally, yeah. like these tiny little details. And for them, it's kind of like with John with for us. George was in our real time. Like, I remember traveling Wolverines very well. I was wondering if he'd ever tour again near me like Paul did and everything. And to have him die was just crazy to me. Yeah. They seem so immortal, yeah. you know, and it's a really scary thing to even say that right now to you and to our listeners. It's just because I feel like we all think that way. I, I mean, Paul and Ringo, I'm knocking on some wood right now, you know, but they seem immortal. And I think for Beatles fans, especially when John was murdered, I think the thought is sort of like, okay, we've been through our bad thing, you know, mm-hmm. but the reality is we're going to go through it. And that really sucks. That really sucks. And yeah. not just for the Beatles, obviously, it's like, there's so many. <laughs> I think about this all the time. It's very, I need to talk to my therapist about this, actually. Yeah, maybe. I'm going to make a note. Mm. <laughs> God. Anyway, let's not talk about death anymore. How about that? Okay. In other news, <laughs> in December of 1967, the Beatles opened their short-lived, ill-fated, yet fabulous Apple Boutique. <laughs> what are you talking about? That was a great business venture. I said it was fabulous. Yeah, that's, it was fabulous. And of course, you know, it closed a year later and all the stories about people getting stampeded because they were sort of like, take whatever you want. We don't care. Like, I know people who do have items from the Apple Boutique, which I assume were sort of taken those last few days or or bought, which I can't remember. I can't imagine so much as bought. Probably not. Um, probably not. But, you know, I wonder, like, where is all this shit? Like, why is it not popping up on eBay more? Like, I want something. Seriously. Paul McCartney said the shop was supposed to be a beautiful place where beautiful people can buy beautiful things. So where are those beautiful things? People have had to have kept them. And if you have, if anybody listening has Apple stuff, like post it, you know, tweet it at us, like let us know because we'd love, I'd love to see it. Right. I mean, if the shop was giving away things for free and there was like super stampede, someone's got to have it. They're out there in the world. So share your Apple stuff. I bet it was such a cool place to go. Oh, I bet. For that brief shining moment that it, it was in existence. And finally, December 15th, 1969, the wars over billboards were posted in 12 cities worldwide. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the show. But for now, those 12 cities, of course, New York, L.A., Toronto, Rome, Athens, Amsterdam, Berlin, Paris, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Helsinki. Interestingly, only the billboards in London were defaced for some reason. <laughs> 
Everything I wonder else why. I can't believe they weren't the face in LA. Or New York. New York was such a crazy place at that time. Yeah, only in London. I'm sure that they caused quite a start when people saw them. This is a small note, but it makes me happy that in the countries where they were done, they were done in the native language of the people, so it wasn't... Yeah, I think that's sweet. It was a universal message, and they were trying to communicate that, not just giving it in English, which would have been central to them. Very cool. That's lovely. And note also the year, 1969, of course, earlier that year in May, that was when Johnny Yoko held the bed in at the Amsterdam Hilton, and we'll talk about Happy Xmas War is over in a little bit, and that was released in the U.S. in 71, U.K. 72. So this comes like two to three years before they released that single. So it was kind of a long marathon campaign. Before we really did this, I kind of had it in my mind that it happened at the same time. Right. You kind of think that way, right? Because it makes sense. It's interesting to think about it as coming two years after because if you look at the poster, the poster is the lyrics in the song, in the chorus. So you'd think that they were done jointly as almost like a marketing venture for the song. But it, this poster does not come from that mindset of trying to sell singles. After all, it's like they were playing a long game and they had this idea, which I like to think about because there is a lot of criticism about John and Yoko's peace efforts as being fly-by-night or for publicity or for the sake of performance art. But, you know, if you're thinking about the same message for that long of a time, perhaps those uh, criticisms are unfounded. It is to their credit that it wasn't a marketing effort for that single. So that's pretty cool. Moving on to some current events, we've got a couple of cool articles we found this week. One of them centers around a Sgt. Pepper album being reimagined with jazz. And it's funny because there's an interview in Billboard with some of the musicians on this record. And I was reading it, and it's funny. Some of them had never heard Sgt. Pepper before they were commissioned to, to do this album. So funny. The album is called Impressions of Pepper. And all of the contributing musicians, or at least the contributing solo musicians, are interviewed for the article. And you see such a range of experiences with the Beatles and just with life coming to this album. The one that that I like, because this is kind of more like my age, second gen thing. The guy was like, I used to watch The Wonder Years and I love the Joe Cocker theme song, which is my introduction oh, to the so Beatles, funny. right? Like, I love the fact that there was a Beatles song in that show. I like it too, because these are jazz musicians and they're not playing that traditional like kind of stuck up like music snob role sort of like yeah I like the Joe Cocker version you Mm -hmm. know they're not sort of like saying things you'd expect them to say which is refreshing this is on Spotify and I would encourage everybody to listen to it it's called Impressions of Pepper and it's really cool I love to see how the Beatles are interpreted for the current era and the current generation and this is this is a really interesting and different sort of way that that it's been done so definitely recommend it that's so cool that's so cool and also on that same vein there's another graphic novel coming out about the Beatles which is awesome um this one's going to be kind of stretching over their whole career and it promises to have things for every level of fan to enjoy and insights into their inner circle of course some Brian Epstein goodness there's definitely going to be a Brian thing there's definitely some Brian Mm -hmm. yeah which is amazing I'm here for it Brian and the Beatles in comics is going to have to have a cage fight with Brian from Vivek Torres the fifth Beatle and we're going to see who wins yeah let's do it there's two Brian's represented in graphic novels and I'm sure they're very different Brian's I'm sure they are and uh, I am going to pay to see that cage match so (laughs) you're probably going to get it on cage match (laughs) 
But yeah, this is cool. This is another place and way that I love seeing the fandom expressed because in that whole like Comic-Con or like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings kind of culture, then you see the Beatles entering it and they fit just fine. Yeah. I mean, the Beatles are really moldable to like whatever kind of medium or type of outlet. Next up, if you are going to Liverpool anytime soon, there is going to be a new bar, a new themed bar in a yellow submarine, and it's actually in inside of a yellow submarine. Mm. That's in the submarine that was originally used as a prop in the Sean Connery film Hunt for Red October. It was first used as a floating hotel on the Albert Dock, and now they have turned it into a bar with a Beatles theme. I'm trying to remember if I've seen it. I'm sure I have, like, docked there um, by the Beatles story, but not coming to mind but that's interesting i mean i'm not in love with the idea of being in a really enclosed space oh no <laughs> uh, but you know if that if you're into that if that's your bag good for you um i do like though that they give some representation to some other merseyside acts i saw on the side they have like jerry and the pacemakers and scylla mentioned so it's it seems to be heavily beatles theme but there is some mentioned that hey there are some other acts that came out of Liverpool too that are pretty good as long as it's not too crowded that day I would go yeah I'd pop in there for a pint of Strongbow and I'm sure a lot of people wish they knew about that a few days ago when they saw Paul play at the Echo hey did anybody out there see Paul play because we didn't and I wanted to so tell us how it was yeah, how pissed am I? I literally, I flew over fucking Liverpool. I, my flight must have been trolling me because I flew over Liverpool the day that Paul, like, played there. Um, oh, God. On my way home from uh, Amsterdam. And I just, uh I miscalculated that one. I'll be regretting that for a while. But, but yeah, if you went. <laughs> how sad they didn't have to make an emergency stop in Liverpool. I know. It's like, I, you know, I hate flying, but it's like just once, like, give me a, give me a malfunction. Oh, we have to, oh, darn, we have to land at, uh, you know, Liverpool, John Lennon Airport, or even like Manchester. I can take a train. That's fine. Anyway, whatever. Rant over. Uh, hey, hey, if you're still shopping for the Beatles fan who has everything, here's something you can get them. And it only cost you $50,000. So there's a contract that officially dissolved the Beatles. Sotheby's has it up for action. They are predicting it's going to be 50 grand, which honestly, I think it's kind of cheap for that because it's got all four Beatles signatures. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in the position to purchase it, but I would expect it to go for double that. So we'll see actually what the final total is on that. Yeah, I got some spare change. Take it. You know, it was uh, finalized at Disney World with John Julian and May Pang. So at the Polynesian Resort, which yeah. we talked to Ken about, remember? Mm-hmm. And we're gonna have the uh, I don't know some sort of meet up there or fest, mini fest there. I yeah, hope. we're gonna do another symposium there on the anniversary twenty twenty four. Yeah, it's gonna be really exciting. So you know, get this and bring this and free admission to our Beetle Fest in twenty twenty four with Ken Womack. Yes, at the Polynesian Resort, which is amazing because it combines like everything I love, which is Beatles and Tiki. Those are the two things I like and cats. So I'm sure that can happen. Uh, but yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah. So this is hot at the presses. we got a couple things that are pretty breaking, which is unusual for us because obviously our episodes go live a little bit later than we record them. But um, so we're rec- recording this on Sunday. Last night, uh, Sean Lennon made a surprise appearance on SNL uh, with Miley Cyrus and Mark Ronson for a cover of Happy Xmas War is Over, which is going to pop up a lot this episode. And it was really lovely. Uh, 
you know, Mark Ronson and Miley Cyrus posted it earlier in the week on social media. And then she was a musical guest last night. And the second number was Wars Over. It was so nice to see Sean. I am such a big Sean fan. I like often tell the story, but I almost worked for him once when I was in grad school. Just Aww. I've just always loved his music. I think he's a fabulous songwriter. His album Friendly Fire is like one of my all-time favorites. So it was great to see him on SNL. It was cool. Yeah, I didn't get to see that yet. So I didn't even know until you told me it was happening. That's that's really, really cool. How did it seem to like how did it feel to watch Sean singing that song? It was great. I mean, he did the background vocals, but um, it was cool because Miley Cyrus really made a point to give him the spotlight, even though he was doing the sort of the echoing of the war is over if you want it behind her performance. I thought she did a fabulous job as well. I think this version is is great. Interestingly, she changed the maybe not so PC lyrics of yellow and red ones to left and right ones, which mm. is way more apropos for us right now. Precisely. So it was really nice. Sean... <laughs> I will say, I'm not super sure what Sean's doing right now as far as a fashion moment. Mm. Um, he's going through this weird, like, sort of, like, biker phase or something. Like, he kind of looks a little village people-y. Uh, not hating. It's just kind of interesting. I've been watching his, like, Instagram videos he's been posting because he's been in the studio a lot recording, which is really exciting. I hope his new album comes out soon. Yeah. Um, but he's been wearing these, like, cut-off, like, sleeveless T-shirts. And huh. so he was wearing that last night, too. And, I mean, he looks great. His arms are jacked, which is, I'm not mad about it. Um, <laughs> but he, yeah, he was wearing, a, you know, this sort of, like, captain's hat and this black, you know, sleeveless shirt. And, of course, he's got the really long hair. And But he looks really happy. And it's so nice to see him sort of finally sitting comfortably in this sort of role he was born into, which is the son of John and Yoko, which is not easy. No. Um, and for a long time, he seemed very uncomfortable with it. But it seems like he's kind of like coming into it now, which is lovely. Oh, good for him. I've got to take a look at this somewhere. Yeah, you do. We'll post it on our socials, too, if you guys haven't seen it. Um, but definitely worth a watch. Uh, and it's also nice because last night was the Christmas episode of SNL, which is always really highly viewed. So that's nice. That's great. I know they had yeah. a, a really fun opening scene that was getting a lot of traction. So, Oh, yeah. It's yeah. great. I hope the musical guest did as well. And I love Miley Cyrus. I really do. Yeah, she's an artist for sure. She is. It would be a dream of mine if she recorded for you. Like, I feel she was <sighs> so good doing that song. Wait, why? <sighs> okay, here's a question. Why has she not collabed with Paul? I don't know. She totally like, should. I would advocate for that. I stand that. I stand for that. I love Mark Ronson too. Like I, I think he's brilliant in his choices and with the artists that he works with. I was just listening to Alligator the other day from New too, and I was like, oh, this is Mark Ronson right here too. I often, I tell this story too, which is very, very much a braggy story, but I don't really care because it actually happened to me. But um, I saw Sean play uh, at this little venue in New York, actually where I used to work for a time called The Living Room, the Lower East Side. After the show, I went up to him and, was, you know, we were just chatting. Um, this is about the time that I was maybe going to work for him. And then Mark Ronson happened to be there because they're super duper good friends. And uh, he was just sort of passing through to say goodbye to Sean on his way out. So very briefly, for a brief and shining moment... I was in a Sean Lennon Mark Ronson sandwich. Oh my god, that's amazing! <sighs> the only thing I could think though the whole time was like, Mark Ronson's so GD tall. He's so tall, and I'm very tall. Wait, if you think he's tall, I can't he's even imagine what it'd be like to hang yeah. out next to him. Jealous. But yeah, too long didn't read. Check out this performance; it's great. 
Moving on to Paul, as we always do every time because he's doing so much, the Wings Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway remastered box sets and CDs came out recently, and there has been a great amount of positive reaction towards it and some reevaluation of the quality of Paul's solo career and especially the beginning of Wings, which I appreciate 100%. Lots and lots of articles coming out, a great uh, billboard article came out sort of giving an overview of the box sets, but we really liked um, our friend Ken Womack's article for Salon where he sort of contextualizes these albums. And he has a great bit in his, uh, his piece where he talks about how these are really where you can see the genesis of wings really coming together, even though they're sort of tossed off even by Paul and Linda as being not great, but which personally I kind of disagree with anyway, because Paul loves to hate on Bitbop, but I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> I'm disappointed in Paul for not giving Early Wings the credit it deserves. Yeah, well, it's very Paul, too. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. sort of like, Paul, like, if you don't like Early Wings, like, you need to look take a look introspectively because, because there's so much, like, Paulness on there. Oh, my God, so much Paulness. Even Bitbop, you know, it would probably fit in on almost any album, just as a little ditty. Yeah, I mean, I discovered it on Wingspan. I don't know if you remember the comp that came out. Oh, yeah, like 2002 uh, or that? so. 2001 or two. It was one or two. Yeah, I was thinking it was yeah, that early. Yeah, something like that. I remember I ordered it off the TV. That's how long ago it was. But yeah, I'm, that was included on there. So Paul must have liked it at one point. Ken really has some great insight into Paul at that time and the songs, especially the song Dear Friend, which is really about John and he gives a great insight into how Paul, even at just 29 years old, was just so introspective and pondering, you know, he was he was looking at his life without the Beatles and without John and needing to grow up because of the changes that he was going through. And he really puts that song to a new context. So I would urge everybody to go to Salon.com and read Ken Womack's article about this. Yeah, definitely. And I think also just speaking in the context of these albums in the Beatles story, this is still where we have John and Paul trading barbs through their songs. It's very much at that time. And Dear Friend, obviously, is one of those preceded by, of course, How Do You Sleep and Too Many People. Yeah, which kind of kicked it all off. These are important works for a lot of reasons. And yeah, Ken beautifully talks about that in the article. It's nice to see Paul putting his emotions on the line, which people say Paul doesn't do, but he does. He does it. He just does it in a different way. Dear Friend is, to me, like a little even more emotional than here today. Yeah. Later. Like Dear Friend is heartbreaking when you hear it. Can you imagine hearing him sing that now? Oh, I don't know if I could handle it. Like, you know, here today is sort of like whatever to me, which is might sound callous, but um, no, you hear I, things yeah, enough. Dear, it's desensitized. You're desensitized. Yeah, to yeah. But dear friend, I mean, that's that's really sad. I think because everybody can relate to that on a certain level, and certainly thinking about it in the context of John and Paul is so sad. Um, let's see more Paul news. Uh, I didn't know this, Erica. Paul's home got burglarized. The home on Cavendish. Yeah, and they found signs oh, of a forced, forced entry. There's still an investigation. I hope they didn't get anything of value because I'm sure Paul, I mean, he's had that house forever. I'm sure it's filled with like, if not financially priceless things, definitely mementos. I'm sure mm-hmm. mean a lot to him. Yeah, but it is, it is scary though. I mean, George was attacked, of course. John, uh, yeah. John was fatally attacked and Paul takes public transportation and he's very independent about his, you know, his security detail. He doesn't really have 
have that when he likes to have a regular life and he does which you know in new york city you know there you really can to some level but you know i just hope he's safe yeah be safe paul we we care about you we don't want anything bad to happen to you yeah stay around stay around speaking of caring the um, oh yeah <laughs> nice segue right <laughs> good one <laughs> a new video came out or is coming out on the day that we're going to drop this episode a new video of who cares it's a video featuring emma stone who is his friend i don't know if any of you remember but i do i remember him a, a great picture of him hanging out with emma stone and um, Alan Cummings Club in the Lower East Side of New York City with the shirt that said, I saw Paul McCartney in Brooklyn, and the caption, hashtag stoned in NYC. So they're friends. <laughs> That's one of my favorite pictures of all time. Well, and, it's cute. Yeah. Just on like a side note about Emma Stone, it's like she started out, out as such a big Paul fan. She has a tattoo on her wrist of, I think, Blackbirds yep. that he drew for her, which I think is so... Uh, like I, I love her, but I hate her. <laughs> so I'm very conflicted about Emma Stone. Just because I'm jealous. It's all jealousy. Comes from a good place. Right. But this video looks great. Um, it's very uh, conceptual. But I'm sorry, I just got hung up on the uh, the bit with Paul wearing these amazing glasses, and he looks really smoking hot. So um, I can't tell you much about the rest of it. He does, and there's actually been a lot of controversy on social media about that, which I was surprised. Damn, I must have missed all that because all I see is like people comparing him to Harry Potter. Like, remember Harry Potter? So what he looks like now, feel old, like one of those. Oh memes. my god, that's amazing! Somebody screenshotted <laughs> it out of context and was like, "Yeah, Paul wears glasses now." And there was this whole debate about Paul looking his age. Oh, he looks old. No, he looks good. Oh, Jesus. I did have a moment though where I saw the screen caps or screen grabs from that video. I was like, God, he looks so much like his dad. But I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, he uh, his he always looked like Jim, you know? Yeah. And yeah, like little cuties. I love y'all. I love us all. Because I'm a member of the fandom too. But like Jesus Christ, can we just not fight about one thing? <laughs> like this is so not worth fighting over. I know. Paul looks good in whatever he's in. The rest of the video, yeah, it looks cool. Um, there's lots of, like, undertones of, like, give my regards to Broad Street with the white and the black makeup. Yikes. Which is strange. Well, yeah. you know, maybe he's trying to revive that. If everybody's, no. you know, saying such good things about wildlife, maybe they'll come around to give my regards to Broad Street one God. day. I don't think so. I mean, like, oh, I love Paul, but yikes. Please no. Please no. Mm. Our last thing in Paul this week, as we were starting to record... Uh, Ringo got on stage with Paul at the O2 for Paul's final show of his 2018 tour. Yay! So we got a Beatles reunion tonight, guys. Amazing. That's, I love it when they play together. Yeah. Oh, and Ronnie Wood was there too, but whatever. Uh, yeah, but Ringo. You know. But Ringo. But, but, but Ringo. But Ringo and Paul together, they played Get Back. Um, that's the only song I saw by the time we were recording, so they may have played other stuff by, you know, by now. But, uh, but yeah, it's on Paul's Instagram and um, it's already getting YouTube, and yeah, amazing. I love it that they're still friends. I know, I know. You think like they would play together more often? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just me. But it's always really special when they do. Oh, maybe Paul will go on on tour with the All Stars one day. <laughs> don't make me laugh. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, but you love Ringo. I'm getting We're you to like a... you like him more and more. You do, you do, you do. I don't know, Rob. You know. I had, a, I had a nice Ringo moment, you know, the Rob episode, but I don't know. Um, you know, I was trying to get all warm and fuzzy about Ringo, and then you made the comment about Paul and the All-Stars, and now I'm just like, mm. okay, no, that, that's that's hysterical. I'd take it back. 
Not really. No. Not, not at all. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but still, very cool that they got on stage together. It is the holiday season. It's creeping up on us all uh, very close now. And in celebration of that, we're spotlighting two songs that, while they're very, very well known in the Beatles canon and outside of the Beatles canon, uh, they're super different, but they're more alike in the fact that they're very polarizing for lots of different reasons. So, of course, we're going to talk about Paul's Wonderful Christmas Time and John's Happy Xmas War is Over. So let's start with Paul, because, you know, this is obvious. This always gets included on, like, the worst Christmas songs ever lists. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting interesting tune, right? Yeah, let's go there. Let's go there. Let's go. <laughs> let's do it. Okay, well, gloves are off, apparently. Yeah. Erica's, like, dispensing with the niceties. I've had a problem with the haters on the song for years. <laughs> okay. So. Shit's getting real. <laughs> Wonderful Christmas time, holiday staple. If you have been to a mall or a drugstore or anywhere in the Christmas season, you hear it. Yep, I heard it in Burlington the other day, not to brag. I'm jealous. It's a great song. And for some reason, which is probably the same reason that people just hate on Paul for other things, people write about this song about how it is the worst song in the Christmas canon. Okay. (laughs) I get it. I get it. Uh, a little background before I get into my rant, because this is a rage rant time. I'm really excited about this, by the way. Yeah, it's a total rage rant. <laughs> so good. So, Wonderful Christmas Time was written during the 1979 sessions for the McCartney 2 album. Um, but it was released on its own, and if you ask what album it's on, it's never quite sure, because it was on its own, and then it was in the 1993 re-release of Back to the Egg, but then it was on the 2013 remastered McCartney 2. So, kind of, it's kind of fluid, kind of flips in and out. But I like to think about it more as um, part of McCartney, too. It just gels more for that with me. Paul played all of the instruments on the tracks, uh, even though you see Wings members in the music video, which is (laughs) such a strange music video, just like almost all of other Paul's other music videos. But it's it's a really fun combination of, you know, state of the art 1979 digital effects and a scene that probably could have been a holiday party at Jim Mack's house when Paul was a teenager. So... Cool stuff. Check it out. Actually, like to me, the, the video like is the epitome of the song. So I think it's one of the most successful videos Paul has had. Just, just saying. And we'll share it for sure. I yeah. mean, it's Christmas week. We got to share this. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So yeah, it's one of the most polarizing songs, not only among the Beatles community, but among people who listen to Christmas songs. People just think they, they hate. <laughs> Which is... Which is, like, fucking everybody, because you can't escape Christmas music. Everybody who goes into any store, you know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, no, not, between Halloween and Christmas, has probably heard it. So, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of hate about this song. One writer, Jezebel, said, It sounds like how it feels to be over-caffeinated and lightheaded in the middle of Macy's Black Friday sale after being awake for 24 hours. It's manic, stupid, and overstimulating while simultaneously leaving the listener wondering if anything at all has meaning. That's a lot of, like, existential dread and anxiety to assign to, wonder- uh, you know, wonderful Christmas time, but... Yeah, uh, sure. but I get it. <laughs> I get it. I get it too. And I'll admit, like, I am ranting about this, but I did not like this song for many years because it 
felt to me on kind of a superficial listen and really it's not in any album so you only hear it once a year so you're not thinking about it and it comes back and you're like oh god it's overproduced synthesizer bullshit for Paul McCartney when he was trying to make something that sounded hip with the times but it's actually kind of drivel that is certainly a take on it correct me if I'm wrong but I honestly feel like the wonderful Christmas time hate has come like like you said the last two years I don't remember it like 10 years ago being like this like I don't think it was super popular but I don't remember it being like this is the number one worst Christmas song of all time level of hate yeah I think there's kind of been a rise between the popularity of the song in the general Christmas time ethos and also the hate there have been some more defenses of it lately which makes me very happy and so I'm going to add one to that (laughs) Here we go. So once really took a time to listen to it and past my knee-jerk hatred of synthy production, which I really do hate like 80s synthy production. This is actually a great song and it's it's a microcosm of Paul McCartney as an artist in a lot of ways. It's awesome and this is why haters need to back off about it. First, it is not cheesy. It's experimental. So the same people who rediscovered McCartney 2 around 2014 as the second coming of McCartney's like brilliance as an experimental artist also kind of have to consider this in the same vein. So at the time he was experimenting with these synthesizers that become a staple of progressive rock and they but they had only just started to become popular because Paul as as we know like he really He's always looking for new things. He's always playing with new things. And so what kind of sounds maybe cheesy to us and maybe not totally finished was actually Paul kind of leading the way in experimentation with things that were at the time out of the mainstream. And of course, out of Paul's like stereotypical classic wheelhouse. But they ended up being a staple of of a movement in music. So, you know, if you place that song, you know, among those songs, it kind of loses some of that, oh, it's so cheesy kind of feel. I could see that because the whole McCartney 2 thing, like you said, it's had, it's really maybe not still having its moment, but it, it surely did, especially when Paul started incorporating more of the McCartney 2 tracks, like Temporary Secretary, into his pre-roll of before his shows. And that got really popular. Yeah, and even into his live shows. Yeah. It's such a good track. Anyway, I wonder, I mean, it takes a lot of guts to make a techno synth heavy, like sort of temporary secretary. That's a Christmas song. Like that's, it's really funny. If you think about it in that context, like it totally frames that whole argument of Paul as an innovator. I think we have to add this to our modern McCartney playlist when we, if we do it again at the Fest for Beatles fans. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I think people shouldn't dismiss as cheese or as just holiday. Building off that, let's talk for a minute about the vocals. So if you listen to it, both Paul's voice and the background voices, which most of them actually are Paul's, they sound a little bit more casual than most of his vocals. Um, The delivery, you know, the lyrics are not amazing. You know, they're Christmas lyrics and Paul isn't always 100% on top of brilliant lyrics in his songs. You know, he's looking for a sound more than perfect poetry. And we know that about Paul. But I think what sounds to some people as lazy or sloppy, I actually think it's intentional because if you hear it, think about it less as lazy and more as warm and welcoming and giving off this Christmas vibe while in the background still dabbling in this very new and almost inhuman sounding synth 
that he used for it. So it's really weird. The juxtaposition is kind of jarring, but at the same time, it gives this very like cozy, joyful, very Paul McCartney feel. Like it's very Paul. If you think about like a Christmas song, simple lyrics mean that anybody can sing along to it. Wonderful Christmas time gets stuck in your head like instantly, which is a blessing and a curse, right? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the point, right? You learn it quickly. You can sing it with your friends, you can go caroling, whatever it is for holiday time. So for that, Paul's talent there works pretty well. It's actually pretty hard, I think, to have a Christmas song enter the Christmas canon. You know, we're still very fixated on the old standards, the Nat King Cole and Andy Williams and all these things that, you know, my parents listen to and then I have always listened to. And some things have been added, like All I Want for Christmas is You is now a staple from probably, what, the mid-90s, I think, that showed up. Probably. It's not easy to get yourself into the Christmas canon. And this song made it there. As much as there is a negative backlash, it's a huge hit. There are a lot of people who really do like it. I mean, when it came out, it ranked number six in the UK charts first year out. It didn't chart in the US, so I think the UK did have more of an affinity for it than we did over on this side. But um, more and more, it continues to be a holiday staple. And a couple of years ago, Forbes estimated that Paul makes on average about $500,000 from this one song alone every year. Not too shabby. No, no. It can't be that bad. No. I would think that the worst Christmas song in the world would just kind of be dropped from playlists. There's no reason to keep talking about something that sucks that much. Right. I mean, unless you're hating on it. But that's an interesting thing about Paul generally. I mean, that's like Paul's almost part of his mythology in that the polarization of his music is so prevalent even now and especially in, you know, the 70s through the 90s. If Paul McCartney did this song, this reaction may always be there no matter what. If another artist did this song, I don't know if the Smiths did this song. I don't know where it would be, but I don't feel like anybody would be putting it on the most hated tracks of the world. That's true. And you think about some of the other synth-heavy Christmas songs, um, you know, Wrapping Paper comes to mind. Also, gosh, I think there's a cover of Baby Please Come Home. It's also a very synth-heavy, sort of like the wispy vocals, that kind of like, I think that, that owes a debt to Wonderful Christmas Time as well. Oh, I'm sure. And I think its popularity also has to come from the fact that it's just kind of built in this snowballing way. You know, nobody really covered it much, maybe two or three, until about 2006. And then all of a sudden, people started rediscovering it and more and more covers came out of the song. So we're not only hearing Paul's version, but we're hearing probably 15 or 20 other covers of this song. Um, some of my favorites are Kylie Minogue's 2016 cover. The Monkees just put it out this year on their 2018 Christmas album, Christmas Party, and Mickey sounds so good on it. It's more acoustic. Slight plug, check that album out because it sort of snuck out, uh, but it's great. My personal favorite is The Shins 2012 cover from the Holidays Rule Christmas album. Paul himself is actually on that doing um, the Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, but I really feel like The Shins cover of the song is brilliant and it's absolutely like the perfection of the song so it's still there it's still everywhere in the public consciousness not only from covers but from paul himself it's a great song as it is but when paul brings it out live it's wonderful it's a sing-along like allison as you said like everyone knows the words and it's so much fun just as we speak like today they did that you know he's still singing it in concerts 
four days ago, he performed it in Liverpool, backed by kids from the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts Choir. So it's still out there. You know, Paul himself is still doing it. And really, even if you do hate it, it's not by far Paul's worst Christmas song. For that, oh no! Please see <laughs> Rudolph the Red Nose Reggae. Yuck! Can can we pretend that never existed? Yeah. Don't go Spotify that shit. Paul does not deserve your point zero zero one cent for listening to Rudolph the Red Nose Reggae. <laughs> if it's even on there, I hope not. It is. Oh God, no! It is. I had to check just to see if I was imagining <sighs> that hellhole, but it's there. Yeah, right. I think that was like a fever dream. Yeah. What I will direct you to though is Paul singing at this week. With the kids from the Lippa Choir. And it's so heartwarming. If you are Ebenezer Scrooge himself, I think you might learn to love the meaning of Christmas just by watching this. So. Aw, didn't he make it snow, too, during that yeah. performance? Aw, that's really, so nice. They're really cute. Those are my arguments. I lay it out. Feel free to at me. I would love to talk about this <laughs> with anybody who's out there. I love this song. I'm open to hearing other arguments. But I'll fight you. That's funny. I mean, I know that you're a grand Paul apologist, as oh, we always say. Yikes. Oh, yikes. Um, but, you know, I can't believe you have me kind of defending on Christmas time. No, I don't have that, like, visceral repulsion to it. Because I think I got on the boat before it was cool to hate it. The first time I heard it, and this, all, this is embarrassing to say, but I think I heard it on the Now That's What I Call Christmas compilation. Probably... 2000 or 2001 whatever because I had just become a Beatles fan in 2000 so um, that would have been right around that time I think and that was like the cool the cool you know the now compilations mm -hmm. um, for modern music so it's like Paul's on there the song you know I really liked it I would love to know what flipped the switch I think you might be right you know in your sort of idea of what that happened but it's just it seems like every year it's more and more like oh god damn the song like i can't stand it like i can't i don't want to hear it even once it's not that bad suck it up <laughs> but i'd like to say for in the past couple of years for every person who's out there hating it there's at least one and a half people who were saying hey wait you know what i'm gonna look at this in light of some other things and kind of re-examine it and i do feel right. like the tide is, is turning. And maybe that's because of the help that they get from all these covers, from all of the different ways that people see it out there. So from the Shins 2012 cover to the Monkees to Kylie Minogue, you know, it's just out there more in the ethos and you're hearing it in different ways, which is to me another staple of Paul that at the core of what Paul does, it is so classic that you can reimagine it you can hear new things in it, but it's still that classically Paul at its core. And I think also what you just did is really important too, which is you frame it in context. When you put it with McCartney too, that changes the whole game because then you're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. I don't know why, but I always tend to think of it as like pre-McCartney too, where it makes even less sense because it's like in the wings period and mm -hmm. I don't know why. Well, because it was part of the Back to the Egg sessions. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably why I like kind of picture it in that gap. But when you put it later, then it's like, okay, yep, that makes sense. And I'm magically okay with it because mm -hmm. that was Paul at that point. Yeah, and all of a sudden he's this crazy cool innovator. And how awesome is that? Maybe part of the reason too, like people maybe, maybe switching, coming around to it, it's like Paul is finally kind of getting his due. You know, it's not just the, the cute one with the uh, granny music, you know, and like 
the little ditties, but he was the experimental beetle, like way before anybody else. I'm going to bring it back to something that Rob Sheffield said in our last episode about Paul, which he says in his book, Dreaming the Beatles. And he says, tell me about your Paul McCartney and I'll tell you who you are. I'm paraphrasing that, but I would love to hear from the people who both love this song and hate this song. And I would love to hear what they think about the song and also what they think about it in context of Paul McCartney's canon as a whole. That's a good question. Definitely tweet us, comment, post on our Facebook wall, email us, whatever strikes your fancy. Yeah, let's talk about wonderful Christmas time. Yeah. And let's talk about another song that's maybe not quite as merry, but just as significant. Happy Christmas War is over. It's out in the world at the moment, obviously, last night being on SNL and, uh, you know, talking about the anniversary of the billboards and all that kind of thing. But Happy Xmas War is over. Like I said before, released in 1971 in the U.S. In the U.K., it was held up a little bit longer because of Yoko's co-write on it. So it got snagged in the Northern Songs publishing debacle. It was a mess anyway. But it postponed it for a year. So in the UK, released in 1972, credited to John and Yoko. They both have a co-write on it. And they're also named, they're both named as producers, along with your friend and mine, Phil Spector, (laughs) on this little ditty. And I actually didn't realize that. I think because when you hear Happy Xmas War is over, you don't hear the really thick sort of soupy production that Phil Spector is known for. As much, but as you start breaking down the song, you get little hints of it, which we'll talk about in a minute. That's crazy. I was listening to the Phil Spector Christmas album last night. Which is the best. No, no, that's the best Christmas album. That's not a guilty pleasure. That's just, it is what it is. Yeah. But I would never think about this song in context with that album and with his production style. Right? Yeah. And I, it's funny, I was listening to a lot, or listening to, uh, reading a lot of accounts at the sessions and that kind of thing, like contemporary accounts written as they were happening. And it's so funny how often Phil Spector would like name check his own music. And it's kind of embarrassing. It's like, oh yeah, like let's make this sound like, you know, the chiffons or whatever. And it's like, dude, like we know you produce this stuff. And he would talk about, you know, Christmas gift for you all the time. And it's like, yes, we get it. <laughs> we get it, Phil Spector. You produce this album, you produce a lot of amazing music, whatever. Anyway, so this single comes, it's the second consecutive single after Imagine, which is interesting when you think about that. And it, it's sort of the little brother, I think of, of it as the little brother to Imagine, because John sort of took a lesson from Imagine, which is you could take a message, frame it in a sort of ooey gooey, he called it like a bit of honey song and get it to the people, make it palatable for the masses. So he wanted to do that again with Happy Xmas War is Over. And that's probably where he sort of was like, okay, I'm going to take this message that we came up with two years ago and put it out there as a song, make it like a nice little tune, and there we go. But at the same same time, John, as he does it, as he usually does, is very contradictory. And he said he wrote it because he, quote unquote, was sick of White Christmas. So whatever. It depends on which John you believe on which day. So a lot of people obviously have heard this track, but have you ever flipped over this, the single? I had not until today and heard Listen, the Snow is Falling on the B-side. It's a Yoko song. Yoko wrote it. She wrote it in 1968. The first song she ever showed to John when they got together. It's actually really decent. It's a nice little Christmas song. Nothing really complex. Definitely has more of that Phil Spector production style, if you're kind of hungry for that. Got tons of Christmas bells, sleigh bells. And there's a really great account um, written by a journalist who was there for the sessions about how aggressive she was in the production 
And by that, I mean like bossing around the musicians and like really kind of heavy handing the vision for this song, which I think is kind of refreshing, especially when you're dealing with somebody like Phil Spector. In fact, the Yoko and I can stand up to him. Good job, Yoko. So flip that over, take a listen. We'll post a link on our social so you can take a listen. So getting back to Happy Christmas. So background vocals were from the Harlem Community Choir and apparently May Pang's on there somewhere as well. To teach these kids, a lot of them were in their like 11, 12, 13 age range. <laughs> John and Yoko taught them the lyrics using a blackboard, which is like one of the best mental images I've ever had uh, ever of Johnny Yoko. And for the players, some of the usuals are there. Nikki Hopkins on piano, chimes and glockenspiel. Jim Keltner, old stalwart, L.A. session musician on drums. Uh, interestingly, Hugh McCracken, who was just on Ram at this point was there originally Klaus Foreman was supposed to play bass didn't get in in time for Happy Xmas but he did make it for Listen the Snow is Falling uh, so he's on the B side um, and uh, the direction that John gave, this is one of my favorite stories about this uh, the direction that John gave to the band was just pretend it's Christmas and then one of the band members says I'm Jewish and so John <laughs> says well pretend it's your birthday then which is classic classic John Lennon of course, this is a direct protest song about Vietnam. That's pretty obvious. Um, the tune, interestingly, is based on a traditional English ballad called Screwball. Um, and there's a version of this, I think called Stewball by Peter, Paul, and Mary that kind of closely matches this in the tune, like, frame. Oh, oh, Stewball was a racehorse. Yes! Yep, 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 yep. That's <laughs> it. You got it. Um, Never made that connection before this. That's amazing. Yeah, right? I, I never thought about that. But... It's funny because as I'm talking about Phil Spector sort of talking about his own work all the time, both John and Phil Spector said that it was loosely based on the Paris sisters hit, I Love How You Love Me, particularly opening opening line, which if you think about it, in that song, it's acapella done, you know, I love how you, uh, you know, and the opening line of Happy Xmas is, so this is Christmas. Um, I, yeah, I never thought about that before I read it, but I did have to LOL a little bit because of the whole them copying a girl group song and then George later getting really hit for my sweet Lord. Oh, George. I know. And driving home that fact a little bit more, John told journalist Richard Williams, I like quoting from old songs, but you get into such trouble with copyrights. It's a drag. And I'm sure George read that and was like, fuck you. <laughs> I wonder if I mean, he's later. deliberately trolling. No, it happened before, I guess, but it's happening about the same time. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. uh, that's amazing. So there's that girl group influence i guess if you want to like say it, if you want to agree with john and phil i don't know um, i don't really hear it but i guess if i want to really listen hard i can hear something yeah i don't really hear it either uh, but there are also um some elements that are based directly on that were intentionally based on other girl group songs one of them um that they sort of copied a little bit in the quick mandolin strums that are the beat of the song throughout mm -hmm. they based that directly on a song by ronnie specter that had just come out, I think also in 1971, called Try Some, Buy Some, which was written and produced by George Harrison. Oh. Uh, that's so funny. And she still does that in concert, which I always love. I'm a huge Ronnie Spector fan. So whenever she breaks out Try Some, Buy Some, it's like, yes. And uh, she's also got great Beatles stories. And they also sort of approximated a lot of the percussion in Happy Xmas with the, the stuff you hear on certain tracks on A Christmas Gift for You. That one of the... <laughs> craziest facts about the song and it's not even that scandalous but it was the first christmas song released by a solo beetle 
which is really weird. <laughs> like I, you know, you wouldn't yeah. think of John the first one to come out with a Christmas track. You know, I'm sure he really just meant it purely as a protest song, whatever, but it still stands. I really would have thought it was Ringo. I thought Ringo would be all over that shit. Me too. But, but Ringo is the last one. Yeah, this is the first one. Definitely predates Wonderful Christmas Time, predates George's Ding Dong Ding Dong. But yeah, I mean, like you were talking about with Wonderful Christmas Time, this has entered the canon also, and it's become this real staple at Christmas, regardless of what's going on or what's happening in the political world or the social world, whatever. But it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. And it's strange that it's sort of like, is also in the same vein of like these warm and fuzzy Christmas songs. And then you have this like really polarizing political anthem. It's a strange song for Christmas. It's a strange song for the kind of vibe that commercial Christmas likes to portray. It's right. not a strange vibe for maybe if you think about what the true meaning of Christmas is. True. If you go by the whole like, you know, peace on earth, this is a direct hit to that, I mm -hmm. think. I feel like maybe it was a product of its time and it doesn't feel relevant when we're still in very much the same place as maybe we were back then. And and I can definitely see the argument where people would say, well, then, of course, it's just as relevant as it ever was because we're in the same place as we are then. But I guess I kind of feel like, what is this doing? How is this helping? If we hear this at Christmas, maybe we stop and think, but... Is this really going to be an anthem that makes people think about peace and activism in the same way that Imagine was, in the same way that even Revolution was, and in the same way that, of course, folk songs and, and a much larger tradition than the Beatles of anti-war type of songs and you know, that go along with movements from other, other genres. But to me, I just don't, you know, maybe it's just a matter of opinion. I don't, I don't feel like at hitting it at Christmas is the right time to hit the message. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I do get it. I think it has been sanitized a lot because it is a Christmas song. I think perhaps if it were more evergreen, um, you know, for any time of the year, it would pack more of a punch. But I think I think the message is still really relevant. I think going back to, you know, Miley Cyrus singing it last night in SNL and changing the lyrics to fit today's sort of spectrum, I think it's really important. I think, you know, it's repurposing the message for a new era but it does drive home the fact that it's like how many years later and we're still singing about this shit, you know, and it's still resonating. It resonated with me. I got a little bit choked up, you know, watching that performance uh, for a lot of reasons. But a big part of it is like, yeah, like it's 2018 and, you know, is war over <laughs> if we want it? You know, it's the same the same shit. I want war to be over, but it's not as simple as that. And it's not going to ever be. And the holiday season is not a time to mobilize people. It's not the time to spread that message because people are not going to take it with them. Right, because they're not tuned into that sort of wavelength at this time of the year. And after 40 plus years, war is not over. And many of us want it. And saying that it's over if we want it doesn't do anything. You know, so what- But what... that was kind of like John and Yoko's whole thing, wasn't it? It's like the bed in, like what the hell is, you know- it's very passive activism, you know, it's not like go out and like kill, you know, whatever groups of people that you hate. It's, it's sort of like, okay, bed in for peace, like lay in bed and talk about peace, think about peace, you know, and John's famous quote of like, if everybody, everybody wanted peace, there'd be peace, you know, war's over if you want it. 
it's that very sort of like generalized passive activism. Right, which I think is a great thing of its time, but I feel like those of us who want peace can't be passive about it anymore. And I think that's what kind of gets me is that in, in our age and yeah, this is going to be political, but whatever, with Trump, with the way that policy changes so quickly, you know, how can we do this? How can we sit back and say, well, I want peace when all of these things are happening in front of us? There aren't enough people in the world who hear the message and say, oh, yeah, I want peace. There are still so many people who say, I don't care. And in order to help change minds and hearts and change the outcome of elections, we have to do something. No, I agree. I totally, I mean, I totally agree. But, you know, don't you feel like this could be a good sort of jumping off point where it's like war's over if, if I want it, but how do I get there? What can I do? You know, and if, and I, I get it, like ideally that's the ideal effect, right? It, but it's not probably going to happen. Like if we're realistic about it. Yeah. I don't think I have a problem with the message. I think I just feel like giving that message during the holiday season when you know, the things, the Christmas songs that you hear in the holiday season, of course, you know them your whole life. And when they come back every year, you know every word, but you don't think about them for the rest of the year. So I feel like a message that's given in the context of a Christmas song may not permeate in the same way as a message that is separated from the Christmas ethos and the Christmas spirit. Even though I think right. they meant very well and I understand what they were doing, I just don't think people take it with them and I wish they would. See, I, so, I don't know. I sort of disagree because I think it's so different than what than what you hear on the radio. If this is like, you know, sandwiched between like Frosty the Snowman and Jingle Bells, you know, it's it's completely different, you know, and it's more, I think, jarring. And it sort of is like, you know, it's 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 a think piece for Christmas. And yeah, people are tuned out this time of year. They're kind of just focused on, you know, parties and, and holiday stuff. But I think it's also just like a nice little subtle reminder that, Hey guys, like the real world's happening while you're drinking eggnog and, you know, watching a Christmas story for the 13,000th time, which is what I do. Mm. But, uh, you know, so I don't know. I think, I think it has a purpose. Um, is it going to immediately mobilize people to go march or start petitions or, do whatever. I don't know. Definitely not. Uh, but I don't know. I think it's a good way to sort of like put that in the subconscious of the mass population. I'm curious to hear this, this Miley Cyrus, Sean Lennon thing that you, you're talking about before, because I feel like maybe it, it, this is a hard song to cover. Oh, she does an amazing. I mean, it's, I, I was really impressed. So maybe hearing it with a new voice will make it feel less like a product of his time because I really feel like this is not to me this does not feel like a timeless song like it, it melds into the background of our Christmas canon whatever but I don't think people think about it anymore when they do hear it if you know in the same way that they think about maybe a, a newer interpretation of the same message at least I hope so I hope it's interesting um, I will say thinking back to her performance and maybe the song in general her cover in general yeah, you know, I don't, it wasn't highly politicized, you know, performance. I don't think it was meant to be, you know, she was wearing a very lovely, glamorous dress. There's no political, you know, sort of statement with that whatsoever, or with the backdrop or with anything. I think it was, especially having Sean there, it felt like more of an homage uh, to Johnny Yoko. Mm -hmm. 
Which, I mean, she could have maybe done more, but, like, also, like you said, it's Christmas, you know? It's, like, you don't want to, like, get, you know, crazy, like, violent images or something. You know, yeah, with you can song, only but... go so far yeah. with the song that you're going to hear before Frosty the Snowman and after Jingle Bells. Right, exactly. So, but it's funny, you know, talking about it in this context, and like you said, it fades into the background and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting here thinking of it sort of in contrast to Wonderful Christmas Time, because we're talking about the two of those songs. And it's like, you know, are they more alike in that sense? Where it's like, you know, I sort of think is of Happy Xmas as more, I don't know, more, I don't want to say important, <laughs> but that's the word that comes no, to yeah, mind. No, yeah, totally. Like important. more important than wonderful christmas time but maybe it's not maybe it's they're both like cut from the same cloth in that sort of sense that they've become both very much products of their time anything that has the sound of its time in such uh such a a, almost an insular way like if, if you count it if you think about it as opposed to like a bing crosby song somehow that's gotten the moniker of timeless and these songs have not neither of them have you know, you really hear 1970s, early 70s Vietnam War in this song. You really hear prog rock synthesizers in Wonderful Christmas Time. So maybe it has to do with just the fact that they are not timeless. And that's okay that they're not timeless. They don't have yeah. to be timeless to always be around. For sure, for sure. But I think as you have people like the Shins or like Miley you know, kind of reimagining <laughs> mm. these songs, you know, for more for newer generations and that kind of thing. It's like that gives them that timelessness, even if the subject matter or the, the composition or whatever isn't completely timeless. It still makes them have a longer shelf life and gives them more relevance for for different groups of people, which is great. I think you need that with songs that don't fit into that classic timeless feel and that, you know, in order to keep this feeling modern i think newer people have to approach it and and try and put their own interpretation on it paul mccartney you know he was maligned for this song and even though there are still many people who classify it as the worst as i said there are still a few more people i think who classify it as a hidden gem and i do think that that is because of the efforts of people outside of paul mccartney giving it a lift well i think you'll be happy to know that although people do like to uh, talk shit about Wonderful Christmas Time. They also like talk shit about Happy Xmas, even though it's more sort of revered uh, in general. I found a great comment from John. That's it uh, on Beatles Bible, and he said this song is spectacularly awful. This is about Happy Xmas. I hate it so so much. I could swing a bag full of cats against a tree, and that would sound better. I do not advocate wow. for swinging cats against trees, but. That made me LOL. A that little bit. is funny. That is funny. I don't. I agree, mean, because you could, because you could definitely. I you would expect to see that like about Wonderful Christmas Time. No offense, uh, but I've definitely seen that many times in different contexts about that song. But to see it about Happy Xmas, that's pretty funny. I do wonder if that has something to do with a little Yoko hate because you can hear her singing. Probably, yeah. There's Probably. I mean, everything John ever did is tinged with Yoko hate. Still, it's really fucked up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's probably part of it. Well, anyway, so Happy Xmas, to wrap this up, didn't really get much traction upon release, but occasionally you'll catch it charting every once in a while, especially because Christmas falls so close with the uh, anniversary of John's death. Sometimes it shoots up to the charts. It famously was number two. Imagine it was number one right after John was murdered. 
1980. So, you know, it uh, has that little boost. Sadly, unfortunately, it does. Uh, but yeah, still, still kind of out there. Like Wonderful Christmas Time, you'll hear them all the time. I'm sure we've all heard them already shopping oh, yeah. at the mall or whatever. <sighs> yeah. Amazing. It's amazing that John and Paul are still kind of like out there, like in this context, even though, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about their songs, you know, like Too Many People answered with, you know, How Do You Sleep or, you know, whatever. Now it's like Christmas, Christmas Bites. It's great. I think there's something to be said about John and Paul and the Beatles generally redefining almost anything they set foot into and maybe in a way they redefine the the definition of timeless and it's not the same as Bing Crosby but we'll always have it with us and we'll always have it to think about and argue about and love and hate because it came from their minds I agree I think that's a perfect way to sum this up so enjoy Christmas enjoy the holidays happy Xmas and have a wonderful Christmas time <laughs> nice All right, so as always, we are going to discuss our favorite Beatle-related thing of the week. Allison, what's mm-hmm. yours? Well, mine uh, comes to us from The Hague in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. and they have uh, the Peace Palace there. If you don't know about it, Google it. It's basically the place where countries or country and a company or two different parties can go and have arbitrary talks or peaceful discussions basically there were for example i think there was one between like yemen and saudi arabia about a border and they resolved it without war without conflict um so it's a really important building it's a beautiful building it's from the early 1900s so i went to visit there it's one of the landmarks in the hague um and was so excited to see out front one of yoko's imagined peace trees and if you've never seen one of these trees basically a tree but she likes people to write their wishes and, you know, their wants or hopes or dreams on slips of paper and tie them to the tree. So it's covered in these like white slips of paper. So it's very much like her aesthetic. But they're, yeah, they're called Imagine Peace Trees. They're, I think there's one in probably Reykjavik with the tower. I'm not sure where else. They sort of pop up. I don't know if they're always permanent. But when I was a kid, and this is the thing that made my heart happy. I mentioned earlier the John Lennon exhibit at the Rock Hall. Um, and for that, she had one of her trees in the lobby. Aww. So I remember being like 14 and going and writing down like my little hopes and dreams and tying them to the tree. And you know, I have pictures of it. And so it was really nice to see one. Again, I hadn't seen one in such a long time. So that was really cool. You know, it was a nice little surprise to see, you know, Yoko popping up at, at the Peace Palace in the Hague. So that's my favorite beetle related thing of the week that's so amazing and unexpected yeah i know it, it really was but if any place deserves one of those trees it's the peace palace so yeah so did you put a new hope and dream on the tree or you know you sadly to... sadly I did not because i didn't see any slips of paper and it was very rainy so i uh... assumed they were sort of all tucked away and you know whatever but i i took a look at a few that were hanging there and they're mostly just like i want money oh. so <laughs> amazing i was sort of like you know disheartened by that but oh well anyway well i'm glad it's there anyway that's that's a wonderful yeah. thing to come across yeah it was very cool i loved it so how about you erica what's your favorite beatles related thing of the week mine is one of my holiday favorites it is a song that was done in 1963 called all i want for christmas is a beetle it was sung by dora bryan who is a popular theater actor and she was in english pantomimes at the time and she wrote this song about 
kind of like all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, but all I want for Christmas is a beetle. And it's an adorable little vaudeville style, very cute parody song. Um, one thing I will say, I, I have to disagree with her indifference, as she says, Ringo, Paul, John, George, they're all the same as to which one ends up under her tree. To me, that, oh, totally, Dora. that totally matters. Um, there would be a <laughs> very, really yeah, there would be a very big difference in my life if I got Paul versus Ringo. Well, anybody. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say names, <laughs> but anybody else. <laughs> we know who you're talking about. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Actually, no, probably George for you, right? Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. Rob Sheffield kind of made me rethink George quite a bit. So I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> the song was a huge hit uh, during the UK's 1963 holiday season, just weeks before Beatlemania started spreading across the US and across the world. It was played nearly continuously on the radio, earned Dora Bryant an appearance on top of the pops, and won her the coveted title of Best Bad Record of 1963. So, Aw, that's yay, me. I like the song. I love it. It's funny. It's funny. I think it was probably, if you think about the, the time in Beatlemania where, you know, the teenagers were buying these records and it was getting all over the place, but possibly the, the, the older people who were probably doing that judging didn't quite get what this was all about. Fair enough. Fair enough. So as Beatlemania became a worldwide phenomenon, the song quickly became a holiday favorite among fans, and the Beatles themselves liked it too. They sent her a thank you note at one point, and they even Aww. parodied it in one of their early fan club Christmas records. Oh, that's right. I think they said all yes, I want for Christmas did. is a bottle, which definitely bottle, is yeah. more what I would give a Beatle for Christmas. Yeah. For sure. I mean, bottle of Christmas. I think anybody would be happy with that. A bottle of Christmas. Maybe not quite sure. as happy as a yeah, a beetle, but you know. Well, I'd still prefer the beetle. So, you know, <laughs> well, yeah. If Santa, you're real, and Paul McCartney is a thing, I can request. I'm requesting that thing. With the glasses. Yeah. 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 Nice. <laughs> cool. I love that song. It's such a good one. <laughs> so cute. All right. Well, thank you so much, as always, for listening to BC the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. And as always, subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. Give us a rating review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Have a happy holiday. Wonderful. Yeah, happy holiday. Whatever Have you're a celebrating. Wonderful Christmas time. Great happy Christmas X-mas. time. Yes, happy Xmas. Blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next time here on Because the Beatles. Bye. Bye.